Good morning again. It is really wonderful to be with you. My name is Peter. I too am one of the priests here. Packing has been on my mind these past weeks, both as our family prepares for our upcoming sabbatical and the travel involved with that, and as we as a church have taken possession of this property. We've been moving things over from the parish house, which just went under contract this week. We're selling that. We've been calling, yeah, you can clap, I guess. We're selling something, yeah. Uh, (laughs) We're culling certain unused things. We're trying to fit everything needed into boxes or bags. And packing naturally leads to questions about what is most necessary, what is most essential. How many pairs of shoes will I need? Which pairs? Why are there so many shoes in my closet anyway? Our Old Testament reading this morning finds the people of God in a transitional moment. They're not packing, but they are taking up residence in this new environment, this new locale. The setting in Joshua chapter 5 is the first time that the nation of Israel, as a nation, is encamped, is living to the west of the Jordan River. They are, in this moment, fully in the land that was promised to them by the Lord. And having just entered the land of Canaan at this moment in history, our text presents an opportunity to consider what is most essential. What are those necessary items for the people of God to bring with them? What are those absolute necessities that must go with us? What can't the people of God, the the church today, leave home without it, as it were? Joshua 5 suggests two essential items. Our reading this morning sets our focus on two necessities. This morning, I'd like to call our attention to these and explore some of their implications around these two headings, the message that melts, and second, a feast of the future. The message that melts and a feast of the future. So first, the the message that melts. Our reading begins in verse one of chapter five with this description of the state of mind or the state of the heart of the rulers of those nations inhabiting the land promised to Israel, the Canaanite and Amorite kings west of the Jordan River. Following Israel's crossing of the Jordan described in Joshua three and four, this miraculous event done by God, this direct echo of the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, In light of this, the hearts of these kings, these rulers, melt, and they have no longer the courage to face the Israelites. Now, with good reason, to our contemporary ears, the the conquest described in the book of Joshua is troubling. It brings up questions. It brings to mind questions of invasion and violence and God's place among these things. I'm not going to make kind of answering that question, those questions, the focus of our time this morning. There are tons of resources about that. I can direct you to them. From very early on in the church's history, there is profound, faithful wrestling with this story. And what does it mean? I want to make one point about this, though. That the rulers of these nations, the Canaanites and the Amorite kings, the kings, the rulers specifically, are universally described in the biblical story And this is corroborated by much like historical scholarship about this period as uniquely oppressive, uniquely tyrannical, in the language of scripture, uniquely wicked, and resolutely opposed to God's purposes of justice and peace and flourishing in the world. They're described as opposed to God's people, yes, 
but opposed to their own nations flourishing, to their own people. We can imagine such rulers as this. And that might not remove, certainly doesn't remove our questions about a passage like this, about the book of Joshua. But it may put those questions in a different light. According to the biblical story, these are tyrants, these are oppressors. And they are weakened. They are rendered fearful. Their hearts melt. Not because of Israel's might. Not because they see kind of the divisions, the battalions of the Israelite army. Not because they're awed, shocked and awed by the technological prowess of the Israelites. No, they are weakened by this message. By this news. This news of God's power and deliverance. The beginning of these kings' undoing is found in this message about God, about God being with and for his people. Our kids have recently been really into that song from a few years ago, Titanium. Many of you will know it. It's this anthem of resilience. The chorus is all about being bulletproof, right? You shoot me down, but I don't fall. And they love it. In the car the other day, they were belting it out and like punching the air as the beat dropped. It was all quite adorable. (laughs) And it's an empowering message. That song kind of makes you feel like you could run through a wall, right? Like, you're like, yeah. But the message that accompanies the people of God, the message that is essential for us, is different than this message. The refrain that we sing is not of our own resilience, our own remarkable strength and power but it is of God's remarkable strength and power. Yes, you and I are made in the image of God. We have capacity and strength. We have remarkable dignity. But the essential message, what the people of God must cling to as they take residence in this new place, is that God is mighty to save. This is why in Joshua 4, just before our reading, after the crossing of the Jordan, Joshua, the people are instructed to make this monument of remembrance, right? 12 stones from the bottom of the river, exemplifying this miracle, a testimony not to their own power, but stacked so that all the peoples of the earth, Joshua 4 reads, might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you, that you would remember always to awe and revere the Lord your God. And this is then exactly what we see happening in our reading, Joshua 5 verse 1. That message, that truth about God's power, of his being with and for his people, able to deliver them, able to fight their battles, is going out. And this is the remarkable thing, that message, that word, that truth, actually begins to change things. News about God's power about the Lord's capacity to provide for his people in every place, his capacity to overcome material reality, physical circumstance that diminishes opposition in the world. I get that this is a profoundly strange notion and can feel, I feel it, altogether naive about how power, true power works in the world. But Where the people of God stand, what is most essential for the people of God, and what melts opposition to God's purposes in the world, is the truth about who he is, is the testimony about what he has done and is doing in the world. That message carries power. 
it changes things. It performs in the world. And so it's essential for God's people. It is central to our existence, to our life. We stand here on this truth. In our time, in our culture, if you're making a list, usually you put the most important thing right at the very center, right? Like, the most most important thing you need to pick up from HEB this week, it goes right there at the top, so you make sure. Unless you're one of those people who, like, plans out your list based on the plot of things in the store, then you have my undying, like, I'm impressed with you. I am my undying admiration. I don't make lists like that. Number one, most important goes on the list. Biblical writers do not have this same kind of quirk. Writers in biblical times worked in a different sort of way. They put the most important thing dead center in the story. Technically, there's a technical word for this. It's called a chiasm. And this is the idea that as you work your way through the list or through the story, the central piece is the most important. That's where the writer wants you to focus. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, dead center in the book of Luke. This is the gospel at the center of the gospel. It is the story of God the Father embracing, welcoming his people, going to great lengths, moved by compassion for them. And the writer of Luke is saying, this is most important. Hold on to this. Make this most essential. Make this the central thing in your life. People of God, stand here. It's like a big flashing sign. Our boast as the people of God is not in ourselves, is not in our own capacity or strength. Our boast, as the language of Psalm 34 put it, is in the Lord. And this message about him, about his ability to save and deliver in Christ now, in the world, overcoming obstacles. It makes the humble glad. It is good news to the poor. It causes tyrants and oppressors to melt. The declaration that God is with his people, that he will not be stopped from his purposes of justice and peace, that he's for the humble, for the poor, that he's making a way for them, is corrosive to the claims of authority and power in this world that oppose God, that oppose justice and peace. The confession that we stand on, that God has drawn near in Christ, is now making a way where there seems to be no way, ushering in a reign of righteousness and goodness. That causes opposition to melt. It causes those who would oppress others to lose courage. We are in the midst of incredibly trying times incredibly fearful times, war, the rumors of war, times of opposition to justice, to peace. And in these times, the truth, this truth about God and his ways in the world, his salvation is powerful, is most powerful. The truth of the gospel is essential for the church and in the world. It is what we cling to. And it must be proclaimed among us who may so easily forget. Those of you who know the story of Israel know they leave this behind time and time again. They lose what is most essential. They lose their grasp on it. It is a particular temptation of those who are successful, of those who are sophisticated, who have resources to lose sight of what is most essential. So there is this need for us to fight and to cling to 
This truth of who God is, of his power, his deliverance, the truth that Jesus saves, that he makes a way where there is no way. What about your life? What situations do you feel in yourself to be overwhelmed by opposition? What is the situation where there appears to be no way forward? In such moments, in moments of suffering and difficulty, the call upon the people of God, the invitation for you is not to find within yourself new stores of resilience, to find new resources like change in your couch cushions, right? The call instead is to cling to this truth, this confession about God, this testimony. Because the truth of the matter is there are situations that outstrip our capacity, that outstrip our resources. Contrary to the song, we're not bulletproof, right? But equally true, more powerfully true, is God's desire, his ability to save you, to overcome every obstacle to his purpose in your life. Through this essential truth, then we find resources to endure, to persevere, to keep on. I've gotten kind of shouty this morning, so I'll wrap this part up. God is mighty to save. He's able to deliver. And the truth that he does deliver and save, that he makes a way, is something that we, Church of the Cross, must proclaim to ourselves and to one another. This is our boast. This message that in Christ God is delivering you and I, God is redeeming, is the message that melts words of condemnation, that weakens the hold of sin, that breaks the powers of fear, of death and hell. It's essential for us individually and corporately. We must take it with us always, now and into the future. Now that's a little bit abstract perhaps, right? You're like, in my mind, I need to seize on these concepts, these truths about who God is. And that's good, like, yeah, that's true. But what is also essential for the people of God is the, the tangible embodiment of this message, the tangible expression in a meal, in a feast of the future. I was struck this week reading an article in The New Yorker, an article on shame. The article was titled, Hang Your Head, Why Shame Has Become a National Pastime. And the writer in it was comparing two different books on the experience of shame in our culture, the emotions associated with it, the sort of scripts on social media or in the news that it follows, and talking about shame's uses and abuses. And at one point, the writer, Becca Rothfield, perceptively commented on overcoming cycles of shame. She wrote this, we can adjust our behavior, but we cannot change the nature of emotions until we overhaul the rituals bound up with them. Personal reform, personal change in our behavior, a change in mindset, Rothfield suggests, is not sufficient. We need rhythms and rituals and practices that might help us live into the truth, that might help us be free of shame. From verse 1, our reading today in Joshua 5 skips ahead a few verses. The, the lectionary leaves out verses 2 through 8. And these focus on circumcision. No one's unhappy that we're moving this uh, past this. But circumcision is this ritual, right, of dedication, initiation into the people of God. 
And after this corporate act of devotion, kind of rededicating themselves, the people of Israel, God declares what we read in verse nine. Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. As the people of God arrive in the promised land, the shame of their slavery, of their oppressed, downtrodden status is removed from them. What was begun in Exodus is completed here, the writer is saying. And this connection, this fresh freedom from shame is commemorated for the people as they eat their first Passover meal in this new land, a free people. This is verses 9 through 12. The, the last time the people of God ate this meal was in Exodus 12, and they were slaves, about to begin their journey into freedom. And now they renew this meal as a remembrance of God's past faithfulness, a remembrance of where they've come from. And eating the meal is this celebration. This is how far God has brought us. The task has been completed. And they eat this meal now, you'll notice, with the produce of Canaan. And the manna, right, the food that was a marker of their wandering in the wilderness, that ceases. They have arrived free from shame. The reproach of their past has been rolled back, rolled away. They're eating of their promised future. I love the movie by Pixar, Ratatouille. And there's this moment in that movie at the climax where the famed film critic, Anton Ego, after tasting the, the dish from which the movie gets its name, it's prepared by a rat, spoiler alert, uh, describes the experience as the discovery of something new. Cutting edge, avant-garde, a taste of the future. Yet also, if you've seen the movie, you might remember that there's this brief moment when Ego takes his first bite of the meal that he's transported back in time, back to his memories as a little boy eating ratatouille prepared by his mother. Even as it is a taste of something new, there's this backward-looking component. The meal is a culmination of hungers he barely remembers, hardly knows he has. Something similar is going on with the meal in Joshua 5. The Passover meal is this look backward into the past, unleavened bread and what they ate in Exodus 12, remembrance of God's deliverance and the journey they've been on. But it's also this look forward, a taste of the promise, a taste of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness, of his abundant provision for their hungers and longings. In his book, A Holy Meal, theologian Gordon Smith suggests that the Lord's Supper is this backward and forward-looking meal. It is a remembrance. We do this in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us. We remember that he's overcome our sin and shame. He has rolled back the reproach against us at the cross. But it is also this glorious anticipatory taste of the future. The spiritual food we consume in the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus as we come in him is the produce of God's promise. Is a taste a reminder that he will one day be with us, in us, for us, in this beautifully full and perfectly complete way. The meal is a feast of the future, a feast of new creation, a reminder that you and I are today new creatures in Christ, destined for glory. The meal is a culmination, the produce of God's promised future, available for us today. 
when we come to this table in just a few minutes, we continue in the same essential meal that the people of God partook of in Joshua 5. And we do so as a means of reminding ourselves of these essential truths, reminding ourselves of the past and reminding ourselves of the future, that God's faithfulness has been made clear in Jesus through the cross in his forgiveness of our sin. And we do so in remembrance of our glorious future of which this is a taste, a feast of hope, a feast of God's presence, just a sampling of what is to come. More than just a truth about himself, God has given us this feast, this feast of himself, as a gift, a ritual reminder, an embodiment, an expression of his faithfulness and grace tangibly reordering us in new creation, working in us freedom from shame, working in us a sure and certain hope. What burden do you carry this morning? What uncertainty or secret shame about yourself? What anxiety about your future? Come to this table as a member of the people of God and taste and see just how gracious the Lord is. Know the loving embrace of your Father who looks on you with compassion, who waits and watches and welcomes you here. This is essential. This is most essential. That you believe the truth about who God is and what he's doing, how he's making a way for you, and that you receive the gift of his presence. He does not despise you in your shame. He does not keep you at arm's length, but bids you come just as you are. Alongside that article I read from the New Yorker, interestingly enough, the online magazine this week, Vox, had a series on forgiveness. And the writer Aya Romano wrote an article titled, Everyone Wants Forgiveness, But No One Is Being Forgiven. She writes, Modern outrage is a cycle. Could a culture of public forgiveness ever break it? Reading those two together was a reminder of the profound hunger in our culture, in our world, the deep desire for grace. This is what God has given us, the ministry of reconciliation, a culture of public forgiveness. What God has given his people and through them the world, what God has given us and through us to our neighbors, our friends, our family, are these essential elements the truth about himself, his power to deliver, his desire, his ability to make a way when there is no way, a truth that performs, a message that melts. When we in our sin and stupidity have destroyed ourselves and others, still God is mighty to save. This essential core truth he has shown us. And even more than that, he's given us this meal, this abundant feast a ritual reminder that we are not of our own making, that we're delivered, that you are forgiven, that the reproach held against you has been rolled back, that you are graced and destined for glory. It's a feast of the future. And as we, as God's people, lay hold of these gifts, we are transformed, transformed for others, 
for a world that hungers and thirsts for grace. So let us hold fast to these most essential elements. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.